He's not the least, he's not the last, either in book order or chronologically, since both in time and in biblical layout, his book comes about midway in the scriptures and in time. And his prophecy follows on from the words of Jonah, which, of course, you'll remember we we heard about before Easter. And so the book of Nahum could be titled Jonah, the sequel. And I was going to show you Jonah's whale, and it's here. So, Jonah the sequel, because both prophets deal with judgment on Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. In Jonah's case, you'll remember, the people repented and judgment was suspended. But like that sword of Damocles, it was still in God's hands. And Nahum graphically describes the events of the destruction of Nineveh which was to happen a few years later in 612 BC. Now, I won't hide from you that Nahum is not an easy read. It's a tough book that says many harsh things, and we may not find it very comfortable. Apart from perhaps a few verses at the start, there isn't anything particularly encouraging or uplifting in it. But it is part of Scripture... And what does Paul say? It is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. It's there for a reason for us to learn from. And I guess Nahum himself didn't find his vision an easy one. But we will see that he records it in graphic and imaginative ways that I think brings his message alive. In fact, older versions describe his words as a burden against Nineveh. This was something laid on his heart. And whilst it's predominantly about the Assyrians, it's for God's people, the Israelites too, and therefore by extension for us as God's people. And for those Israelites, the message is a comfort in the sense that it will strengthen and encourage them. Nahum means comfort in Hebrew. God will one day put an end to the suffering and punish the people who cause it. And this perhaps isn't a very popular idea these days. Many people might suggest that the book of Nahum epitomises the claim that the Old Testament is full of violence and hatred. But what I hope we'll see is it shows God's justice. Punishment is meted out, but to the wicked who won't change their ways. But as Peter says in the New Testament, God, he does not want anyone to be destroyed. He wants everyone to repent. It's like the story of a teenager who didn't notice the oncoming truck as he crossed a busy road. Just before the young man darted in front of a speeding vehicle, a strong hand grabbed his shirt and pulled him back safely to the curb. He was red with fear and adrenaline as the teenager thanked the elderly man for saving him. Several weeks later, that same teenager 
was in court for stealing a car. When the boy looked up at the judge, he recognised him. Hey, you're the man who saved me a few weeks back when the truck was coming, he exclaimed. Surely you can do something now. Sorry, son, replied the magistrate. On that day, I was your saviour. Today, I am your judge. Everybody has the opportunity to repent and experience the benefit of salvation, to turn away from going our own direction and go God's way. And the Ninevites had that same opportunity when Jonah preached. And of course, we know that Jesus longs for all people to come to repentance, to turn back and walk in God's way. But when we stand before God the judge, that opportunity is gone. At that time, judgment will be executed. Now I'm going to read the whole of Nahum. So we'll be here to about two o'clock doing that. <laughs> no, it's only three chapters. So we will go through it. But listen to the language, the pictures that Nahum creates. <clears throat> This message concerning Nineveh came as a vision to Nahum, who lived in Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous God, filled with vengeance and rage. He takes revenge on all who oppose him and continues to rage against his enemies. The Lord is slow to get angry, but his power is great, and he never lets the guilty go unpunished. He displays his power in the whirlwind and the storm. The billowing clouds are the dust beneath his feet. At his command, the oceans dry up and the rivers disappear. The lush pastures of Bashan and Carmel fade. The green forests of Lebanon wither. In his presence, the mountains quake and the hills melt away. The earth trembles and its people are destroyed. Who can stand before his fierce anger? Who can survive his burning fury? His rage blazes forth like fire and the mountains crumble to dust in his presence. The Lord is good. A strong refuge when trouble comes. He is close to those who trust in him. But he will sweep away his enemies in an overwhelming flood. He will pursue his foes into the darkness of the night. Why are you scheming against the Lord? He will destroy you with one blow. He won't need to strike twice. His enemies... Tangled like thorn bushes and staggering like drunks will be burned up like dry stubble in a field. <clears throat> who is this wicked counsellor of yours who plots evil against the Lord? This is what the Lord says. Though the Assyrians have many allies, they will be destroyed and disappear. Oh, my people... I have punished you before, but I will not punish you again. 
Now I will break the yoke of bondage from your neck and tear off the chains of Assyrian oppression. And this is what the Lord says concerning the Assyrians in Nineveh. You will have no more children to carry on your name. I will destroy all the idols in the temples of your gods. I am preparing a grave for you because you are despicable. Look, a messenger is coming over the mountains with good news. He is bringing a message of peace. Celebrate your festivals, O people of Judah, and fulfill all your vows. For your wicked enemies will never invade your land again. They will be completely destroyed. Your enemy is coming to crush you, Nineveh. Man the ramparts. Watch the roads. Prepare your defences. Call out your forces. Even though the destroyer has destroyed Judah, the Lord will restore its honour. Israel's vine has been stripped of branches, but he will restore its splendour. Shields flash red in the sunlight. See the scarlet uniforms of the valiant troops? Watch as their glittering chariots move into position with a forest of spheres. Waving above them, the chariots race recklessly along the streets and rush wildly through the squares. They flash like firelight and move as swiftly as lightning. The king shouts to his officers. They stumble in their haste, rush into the walls to set up their defences. The river gates have been torn open. The palace is about to collapse. Nineveh's exile has been decreed, and all the servant girls mourn its capture. They moan like doves and beat their breasts in sorrow. Nineveh is like a leaking water reservoir. The people are slipping away. Stop! Stop! Someone shouts. But no one even looks back. Loot the silver. Plunder the gold. There's no end to Nineveh's treasures. It's vast, uncounted wealth. Soon the city is plundered. Empty and ruined. Hearts melt. Knees shake. The people stand aghast. Their faces pale and trembling. Where now is that great Nineveh, that den filled with young lions? It was a place where people, like lions and their cubs, walked freely and without fear. The lion tore up its meat for his cubs and strangled prey for his mate. He filled his den with prey, his caverns with his plunder. I am your enemy, says the Lord of Heaven's armies. Your chariots will soon go up in smoke. Your young men will be killed in battle. Never again will you plunder conquered nations. The voices of your proud messengers will be heard no more. What sorrow awaits Nineveh, the city of murder and lies? She is crammed with wealth and is never without victims. Hear the crack of whips, the rumble of wheels, horses' hooves pound and chariots clatter wildly. See the flashing swords and glittering spears as the chariots charge past. There are 
countless casualties, heaps of bodies, so many bodies that people stumble over them. All this because Nineveh, the beautiful and faithless city, mistress of deadly charms, enticed the nations with her beauty. She taught them all her magic, enchanting people everywhere. I am your enemy, says the Lord of Heaven's armies, and now I will lift your skirts and show all the earth your nakedness and shame. I will cover you with filth and show the world how vile you really are. All who see you will shrink back and say, Nineveh lies in ruins. Where are the mourners? Does anyone regret your destruction? Are you any better than the city of Thebes, situated on the Nile River, surrounded by water? She was protected by the river on all sides, walled in by water. Ethiopia and the land of Egypt gave unlimited assistance. The nations of Put and Libya were among her allies. Yet Thebes fell and her people were led away as captives. Her babies were dashed to death against the stones of the street. Soldiers threw dice to get the Egyptians' officers as servants. All their leaders were bound in chains. And you, Nineveh, will also staggered like a drunkard. You will hide for fear of the attacking enemy. All your fortresses will fall. They will be devoured like the ripe figs that fall into the mouths of those who shake the trees. Your troops will be as weak and helpless as women. The gates of your land will be open wide to the enemy and set on fire and burned. Get ready for the siege. Store up water. Strengthen the defences. Go to the pits to trample clay and pack it into the moulds and make bricks to repair the walls. But fire will devour you. The sword will cut you down. <clears throat> the enemy will consume you like locusts, devouring everything they see. There will be no escape, even if you multiply like swarming locusts. Your merchants have multiplied <clears throat> until they outnumber the stars. But like a swarm of locusts, they strip the land and fly away. <coughs> Your guards and officials are also like swarming locusts that cloud together in the hedges on a cold day. But like locusts that fly away when the sun comes up, all of them will fly away and disappear. Your shepherds are the sleep, O Isidian king. Your princes lie dead in the dust. Your people are scattered across the mountains with no one to gather them together. There is no healing for your wound. Your injury is fatal. All who hear of your destruction will clap their hands for joy. Where can anyone be found who has not suffered from your continued cruelty? <clears throat> Tough words, but picturesque. <coughs> we know nothing practically about Nahum except what we read in the first verse that he came from Elkosh but we don't know where that was possibly it was a village somewhere in the Galilee some have identified it with Capernaum which means the village of Nahum but that could be wishful thinking however he was a contemporary of Jeremiah, Zephaniah and Habakkuk and here I hope is going to be a portrait of Nahum there he is you can see that 
It might not be exactly what he looked like, but the overall composition gives us a good impression, I think, of the contents of his vision. It's one of a series of paintings made by a Jewish artist. And you can see what is Nahum's attitude in this picture. He could be at a football match, couldn't he? His hands are clasped when his, his team appears to be winning. He's cheering the result. And we'll see and we have heard how accurate an image that is. Now Assyria that we've been reading about is not to be confused with Syria which was the superpower of the Middle East in the 7th century. And we see all these references to Nineveh, which of course was the capital of Assyria. And Nineveh is used much as we speak about Washington or Moscow when we mean the USA or Russia. And of all Israel's enemies from the time of the exodus from Egypt until their exile in Babylon, this was the one that was most feared and hated. Assyria was a byword among the nations of the region for its inhuman atrocities. You would have got a feel for that in the verses we read. And as that last verse of the prophecy said, who has not felt your endless cruelty? That was how people regarded Assyria. And as we learnt, the capital Nineveh fell in 612. It marked the end of one empire and the triumph of the next. Babylon overtook Assyria, overflew Assyria, but Babylon in its turn was to fall little more than 70 years after. And that was before the Persians, and they were followed by the Greeks under Alexander the Great, and then by the Romans, and that brings us to the New Testament. So it was one empire after another. And we know that in our more recent history, other empires have come and gone in the last 2,000 years. And we may look at the current political scene and suggest our own candidates for Assyria's role. And equally, there may be other groups or even individuals who you feel could be identified with Assyria in your mind. Maybe we would put drug dealers or those who prey on others, perhaps through prostitution or modern slavery, into this category. The bottom line is that Assyria was its evil empire of the day. And of course we know that there is still so much that is evil in our world, and it all stems from the evil one himself, Satan, the devil, call him what you will. He is still as active today as he was all those years ago. And it is upon him and all those who follow him, that God will pour his ultimate judgment. But that only after due warning. And in the book of Nahum, we see an example of this being worked out on those wicked Assyrians. But in due time, we will see God's vengeance fall on all who have turned against him. But despite its warlike quality, I think there are some beautiful and uplifting passages in this book, most of them in the first chapter. To begin with, we read that the Lord is a jealous God, filled with vengeance and rage. We may find this strange. Surely jealousy is a sin. Perhaps as children we were told not to be jealous of a sibling or a friend who had something we wanted. But this is the crux of the word. It's wrong to be envious 
of what others have and we want to possess, but it's a virtue if it means cherishing what is ours and wanting to protect it. Since God made everything and owns everything, he is envious of no one. But since he is the only true God, he is jealous over his glory, his name, and the worship and honour that are due to him alone. A just and holy God cannot see people flouting his law and do nothing about it. When God takes vengeance by judging people, it is because he is a holy God and is jealous for his holy law. God's anger is not like the human emotion, which can be selfish and out of control. His is a holy anger, a righteous indignation against all that defies his authority and disobeys his law. Righteous anger opposes evil. (coughs) If we can stand by and do nothing while innocent, helpless people are mistreated and exploited, then something is wrong with us. But in verse 3 of chapter 1, we are assured that God's wrath isn't a fit of rage or a temper tantrum, because it says the Lord is slow to get angry. So Nahum introduces us to a jealous God who is angry at sin, but he is also a good God who cares for his people. He is a refuge for those who trust him, but an overwhelming flood to those who are his enemies. Then in verse 9 we find an echo of Psalm 2. Compare, why are you scheming against the Lord? He will destroy you with one blow. He won't need to strike twice. With, why are the nations so angry? Why do they waste their time with futile plans? This seems to sum up Nahum's vision. And then that first chapter ends on that high note. Here, amongst all the death and destruction, we find those lines looking further ahead than Nineveh's destruction. Behold, on the mountains, the feet of him who brings good tidings, who proclaims peace. Tucked in amongst the doom of Nahum, here is this prophecy of the Messiah, Jesus which echoes those words of Isaiah. And of course, from our perspective, he has come already to open the way for us to come freely to God. But he will come a second time when he will usher in his ultimate kingdom of peace, when, as Isaiah also tells us, the lion will lie down with the lamb. Moving into chapter 2, the opening line says it all. Your enemy is coming to crush you, Nineveh. The destroyer might have destroyed Judah, but the Lord will restore everything to them and they will be splendid once again. We have seen this happen to Israel both when the remnant returned from exile and in the lifetime of some here when the Jewish people returned from the Holocaust and once again became a thriving nation. We see it in our own lives where things that were lost to us can be restored by the grace of God, by his love and care for us. But in contrast, as it said in verse 11, where now is that great Nineveh? I'm digressing slightly. I think it's interesting to note that for hundreds of years, 
There was no archaeological evidence for the existence of Nineveh. It was thought to be a biblical myth. Over the years, the city had faded entirely from view. And while other ancient biblical cities were identified by ruins that were still visible even in the 1800s, Nineveh remained buried in oblivion until it was discovered relatively recently, proving once again the accuracy of the scriptures. So if we can look at our painting again, you might just be able to see, if it ever appears, in the background, a series of figures clothed in red. There they are at the top. Clothed in red on horseback, coming against the ramparts of a city. And how well this depicts what we read in chapter 2. Shields flash red in the sunlight. See the scarlet uniforms of the valiant troops, that's the Babylonians. Watch as their glittering chariots move into position with a forest of spears. Spears. So the prophet describes that scene of the enemy army advancing against Nineveh as though he was an eyewitness. And red was the favourite colour not only of the Medes, from whom the Persians obtained their purple tunics, but of the Babylonians. It denoted might and power and it was expensive, so it was only for the highest people. As we saw last week, didn't we, in the coronation robes. Red was also used to strike fear into the enemy, but those who were dressed in scarlet would themselves in due time be overthrown. And I'm reminded that God describes our sins as being like scarlet when he says in Isaiah, though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them as white as snow. They are red like crimson, I will make them as white as wool. Whenever we feel overwhelmed by that enemy army, when the weight of our sin weighs us down, we can remember that through the blood of Jesus, God has promised to cleanse us and make us a new creation, pure and holy, white as snow. So as we've read this prophecy, we may have felt uncomfortable at the level of violence displayed and Nahum's jubilant reaction to it. But our God is a gracious judge. He punishes with strict justice those who set themselves against him. In chapter 3, we see exactly why these things had to take place. All this, it says in verse 4, because Nineveh, the beautiful and faithless city, mistress of deadly charms, enticed the nations with her beauty. She taught them all her magic, enchanting people everywhere. What a damning indictment. The NIV speaks of wanton lust and witchcraft, terms used in scripture for those who care nothing for God. And they're very apt metaphors, aren't they, for the ways in which people for their own ends use and manipulate others and if necessary, discard and destroy them. And we see this happening only too often in our society today. You don't have to drive far to spot a poster advertising a psychic fair taking place. Sadly, many people may be more interested in spiritual things, but don't want to hear anything about Jesus or about our Heavenly Father. God is the enemy of the wicked, 
whose path, the psalmist says, leads to destruction. In verses 8 to 10, Nahum Nahum likens the fate of Nineveh to that of Thebes in Egypt, which was destroyed by the Assyrians in 663 BC. Thebes rivaled Nineveh in natural defences and excelled them in military resources, but they succumbed to the advancing army. Soon Nineveh will be at the receiving end of a greater military force, and they will fall just as Thebes did. And then the final verses speak of the various groups of people who will be destroyed. Assyria was like a scattered flock with sleeping shepherds. How does that image reflect our nation today? So the book of Nahum reminds us not to forget about the Lord and put our trust and faith in other things. The people of Nineveh were trusting in their own power, possessions and idols. Although they had once repented, they completely forgot about the mercy they had received and turned back to their evil and destructive ways. This ultimately led to their destruction. This is why it is so important to remember where everything comes from and that each day we humbly receive the mercy and grace that the Lord offers us. How, therefore, do we respond to this somewhat barbarous prophecy? The prophet Nahum reminds us of God's active hand working even in the darkest times to bring justice and hope throughout the world. We must remember that the very object of God sending his son into the world was to deliver us from evil. Through Jesus, he is, in the meantime, rescuing people from the power of evil. But those who will not let themselves be detached from evil can't help but be destroyed along with it. It's a sad fact. As Charles Spurgeon said, he who does not believe that God will punish sin will not believe that he will pardon it through the blood of his son. Thus it should be our response to keep working and praying for lost people to be delivered from evil, to rejoice at the destruction of evil in the world around us, and to be equally eager to do away with evil that we may be cherishing in our own hearts. When we turn from our sinful ways and receive what the Lord offers to us, we are promised that he cares for those who take refuge in him. If you remember nothing else about Nahum, remember this verse from chapter 1 and verse 7. The Lord is good, a strong refuge when trouble comes. He is close to those who trust in him. And may that apply to each one of us today. Amen. Amen.